A little disclaimer about today's podcast. We experienced some technical difficulties that compromised our sound just a bit. But Stephen Tobolowski is truly one of the best guests we've ever had. So I hope you'll forgive the sound and bask in the glow of his brilliance. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome to another edition of Father Time. Uh, my guest today is this is part two. Um, you know him from everything on Earth. Groundhog Day, Memento, Silicon Valley. He's currently doing one day at a time. I loved you in Californication. You were kind of a sex addict. And Thank you, you to, sir. You I really enjoyed that. Heavy boning. Uh, his book, My Adventures with God is Out, Simon Schuster. Uh, you know him from his podcast, The Tobolowski Files. Please welcome back Mr. Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen! So, um, for people who listen to part one, which if you haven't, go back and listen to part one and then come in, because otherwise you're going you're gonna to be lost a little bit. Um, we covered your college years. You finally lost your virginity after yes. three years with a girl. And uh, at the age of 21. But all of a sudden, you leave SMU yeah. with your girlfriend. We go to the University of Illinois. For, for one year. One brief master's degree. Master's degree. And this was... In fine arts. In, yeah. And, and they were instituting a master's program in acting, specifically acting. Your father was so excited for this. He was really happy about what you were doing. Boy, no. This was... And this is probably <laughs> what they call the nadir. This is probably... The low point. My parents had a little hope in thinking like, well, if he's in graduate school, maybe he'll become a professor. You know, there was some hope for it. So we went to the University of Illinois to their new acting program, which was not well organized yet at all. And the same difficulties from SMU followed uh, my girlfriend and I in that I would get cast and she didn't. And it created heartbreak. That's a real problem. That's a real problem. I've, I've dated actresses, and yeah, it's all—it's great when you're at the same level, and then as soon as one person goes to the next level, it's like, that's the end of that. And let's be clear. Uh, when you're in college, and you're uh, okay at no one in college is really a good actor, except for Powers Booth and Kathy Bates. They were in my class. Is that right? At hey, SMU. Oh, wow. And they, at SMU, and they were good. Powers was great. Kathy was great. And most of the rest of us, you know, we, we were all right. We had a lot of energy. Right. We had a showbiz energy. So when, when you have a sort of, for those who are listening, jazz hands were jazz presented. Jazz hands! I, I felt, you know, I had a certain degree of competence. Who is the best baseball player on a team when you're in the Little League? Pitcher. 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 Best cleanup. Best cleanup. Yeah. I was the pitcher on our softball team. I was the pitcher. I batted cleanup. That's the way it is. And when you are in college, and when you are the pitcher, when you are a good actor in college, you play the old people. <laughs> you, because they're the leads. So in, if you're doing Shaw, you know, you spray your hair with streaks and tips. Oh, my dear. How are you? <laughs> so you, you play those roles. So even though I got cast in... Good parts, like at the University of Illinois, I was cast as an 86-year-old physicist. Sure. So I had a lot of lines, but it's not a part I would be good at or would do. Uh, Beth got cast as an 11-year-old in, uh, what is that? Thornton Charlie Brown. Skin of Our Teeth. Skin of Our Teeth. She played the little daughter in Skin of Our Teeth. And she was great, but she was playing an 11-year-old. 
so uh, who had a handful of lines. So she was, we were invited to do a reading. Claudia Riley was playwriting major at the University of Illinois. Let me define this further. Claudia Riley was the only playwriting major <laughs> at the University of Illinois. One person, one person. And Claudia wrote a play, and she asked Beth and I if we would play parts in this play. Claudia, I think, was a junior at the time. So Beth had a great part in it. I had a good part in it. We played parts our age. Claudia invited some people. It was her thesis player, you know, to get your grade. It all went well. And then Beth and I are walking home, and Beth is curiously quiet. And we get back to our little apartment, and she said, that was very brave, what Claudia did. And I go, what was brave? She wrote a play. I said, well, nothing brave about it. She was in a playwriting class that she wrote, but she was a woman, and she wrote a play. I said, listen, baby, the world's different. Uh, women are cowboys, men are strippers. It's a whole different world out there now. You know, there's nothing... You know, she's yeah. in a play. She wrote a damn play. And Beth, I, I think maybe if I were to go in the Wayback Machine and say, well, maybe I would have handled yeah, this more delicately. Even I can tell that's not a great way to handle that. She said, maybe I don't want to act. Maybe I should write. I'm going to start writing a screenplay. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's dumb. Good luck, sweetheart. What a waste of time. Okay, drunkie, have fun. <laughs> you know, so, so you know, she... she uh, had written a play at SMU uh, that was called, that she ended up calling Am I Blue, that she mocked and made fun of, and she handed in as, under a pseudonym, Amy Peach, and it ended up being picked by the faculty to be one of the major productions. And we all thought this was a huge joke, and we thought this is going to be horrible, and Beth is going like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, it's going to be the end of it. You know, this is, they're going to make so much fun of me. They're going to mock me mercilessly. Went out there. The show was brilliant. And I'm sitting next to this girl at SMU, and I'm thinking, who the hell is this person? This is the best damn play. I mean, it's a one-act play. But this is a good play, Am I Blue? And it is a play that in future, if we go in the time machine, uh, director Jonathan Demme saw this play and said, like, I got to make a film of this, and he did. Uh, her play. So anyway, now we're in graduate school, and she says she wants to discard acting entirely and take up writing. So uh, she starts writing a screenplay. Okay, and you know we're going to write. So I I leave. I used to be like I used to be like yeah right now I'm now I'm like actually that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Right. She was the smart one. She was the smart Why one. Why didn't we think of something else to do? The she, problem is, if you're working, you probably would have become a writer if you never got hired. <laughs> That's the, Most of my friends who were writers started with me as actors. They weren't getting any parts, and they were smart enough to go, all right. And all of a sudden, they, the writing took off and stuff. Right. So she was pretty smart. She was smart, but also she was good. <laughs> That's you know, true. But we didn't know That's how true. good That's at the time. Uh, I came out to Los Angeles to start up my acting career and ended up working in children's theater. So I did get a paying job right away. That's cool. And she came out and couldn't really get anything. She ended up working a temp job. She, I think she worked at a dog food factory. Uh, not great. Uh, but in the then, middle of Los Angeles, I, I had no idea where the dog food factory is. It's on uh, Bonnie Brea. 
I know where that is. I drove her to work once. It's in the downtown area. It sounds horrific. Oh man, like a slaughterhouse. It <laughs> That's the, out of all the. She couldn't get a waitressing job, or why she's like, I'm going to the dog. She tried that. to get one waitressing job at Pepe Gonzalez's, and. Uh, fitted her for a Mexican outfit, you know, like with the puffy white sleeves <laughs> and the low-cut bodice and the big orange skirt yeah. and all this. And I was doing a show at the time. I was doing uh, Godspell. I was playing Jesus in Godspell. Hello. Hello. That's the lead. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a paying job. So I, 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 I'm, send, I'm sending her off to work before our matinee. And... <laughs> She's going off to Pepe Gonzalez's to be a waitress. And I come back in between shows to see, you know, how the lunch shift went. And she's crying. She's home crying. I said, what are you on break? I quit. I quit. I can't do it. I can't handle the trays with all of the margaritas. And there's so much. And the chips. And I can't do it. And and so she she was a waitress for two hours. Uh, she couldn't do that. So, but dog food, dog food, she could do. She could do that. She wasn't. She had a family tragedy happen to her, and that is, her grandfather got lost in the woods, and it was a a big deal. They they had uh, newspaper articles that they had dogs out and everything looking for him Jeez. for two days. Third day, he emerged from the woods alive, and. Beth started writing a play. Yeah, I, I immediately, I was like, well, that sounds like a movie to me. She started writing a play, and uh, the play developed, and I think she called the play Old Granddaddy's Dying. And I'm thinking like, well, that sounds like a, yeah. So <laughs> I love the story. You're like the most supportive guy on earth. I, I think I'm going to write what I'm you've seeing the line, what is wrong I'm with seeing you? the line around the block. So anyway... <laughs> She's walking around the house with these tattered notebooks, and there's this pile of play developing here. And she said, would you read the play for me? You know, would you read it? I'm going like, one of the signs of love is that you have to read the play they write. I start reading this play as good as Am I Blue was, and it was good. This was stratospheric. (laughs) It was probably the greatest play I had ever read. And I'm reading this play, and she's typing in the other room. She hadn't finished finished the play yet. And it was better than sex. It's like we got to the end at the same time. She hands me the final pages of the script. I'm reading it. I'm in tears. I'm saying, this is so good. You cannot call this old granddaddy's dying. This needs a real title. This this play will be on Broadway. This is this is such a fantastic play. And she said, well, I was thinking maybe of calling it Three Mississippi Sisters because I like Chekhov so much, and he wrote Three Sisters. I'm going, well, you could go another way with it. You know, the youngest daughter is accused of shooting her husband in this play, but she had, the case is that he had beaten her. And in the South, I know there's a typical phrase for that. You call crimes of passion. You know, why don't we call crimes of passion? So she ended up calling the play Crimes of Passion, and we were going to do an equity waiver 
per play of it here in LA. And uh, for the people out there, equity waiver means you waive goodbye to any idea <laughs> of getting paid. Never going to get paid. So all of our friends were going to play part. She was going to play the part of Babe. I was going to play the part of Barnett. Our friend was going to play Lenny. Our other friend was going to play Meg. We got a director and the girl who was going to play Meg took uh, the uh, three Mississippi sisters, Crimes of Passion, and handed, and she gave it to her agent, who of course never read it. But he had a friend who would come in from New York occasionally, who was a literary agent, and he handed a pile of plays to the literary agent, and the first play <laughs> on the pile <laughs> is Crimes of Passion. We get a phone call from Kennedy Airport from a man named Gilbert Parker uh, saying, I would like to talk to Beth about Crimes of Passion. And so I hand it over and he says, I think this play is real potential. I would like to be your agent. Uh, I would like to help you with this play. It turns out Gilbert Parker was a man who uh, had worked with Lillian Hellman had worked with Tennessee Williams when he began. Uh, Mark Medoff's agent, he handled every Pulitzer Prize. He is, was the number one literary agent in the country. He had read this play. He said the one problem with it is you can't call it Crimes of Passion, really, because uh, Ken <laughs> Russell is just releasing a movie I called Crimes of Passion. The whole time in the back of my head, I'm like, I think there's a movie called yeah. Crimes of Passion. Ken Russell yeah. was, was doing, in fact, I met Ken Russell when I was doing Mississippi Burning, uh, I did Mississippi Burning, and Alan Parker was a really good friend of Ken Russell. And right after that, I did Great Balls of Fire. We shot in London, and I had a party with Alan Parker. Went to see Alan again, and Ken Russell was there. And I was telling him the whole story That's about... That's like Lair the White Worm time or something, isn't that him? Yes. And uh, Beth was saying, well, what can we name the play if we're not going to name the Crimes of Passion? And I said, well, maybe Crimes of the Heart. That's the same thing as Crimes of Passion. And so Crimes of the Heart ended up being off-Broadway at the Manhattan Theater Club. It won the Pulitzer Prize, then moved to Broadway, ran for two years. <laughs> they did a film deal immediately. Diane Keaton, yeah. Jessica Lange, yeah. Sissy Spacek, nominated for Academy Award, uh, Best Screenplay. Uh, and, she and, wrote the screenplay, too, then. Yeah, and, and yeah she like, wrote the screenplay. And you're like, oh, yeah, that, that playwriting thing you were talking about. Yeah, that yeah, play yeah good luck with that. <laughs> that was, I hope it works out for you. That was a good idea. And she's well, pissed off because you got the part of an old guy. <laughs> <laughs> Are you in it? No, no, not in the movie. But but my parents, from that point on, loved Beth. They loved Beth. And, I mean, Beth was very lovable. There was not a reason not to love her before except for just to be ornery. But, but she became enormously successful yeah. with that. People Magazine named her the 20, one of the 25 most interesting people in the world or whatever it was at the time. And she, she got death threats and all the things that happened to famous people. So uh, you know you've made it. So she, she, and we moved from our little humble digs where she was the dog food place and I was working on children's theater up to a house in the Hollywood Hills with a swimming pool. And that's where the parties with the cocaine. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where all those parties happen. Why did you guys, you didn't think to get married? I asked her like three times and I even got her a ring once, but she said, no, 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 that she didn't believe in marriage, uh, that she said that she felt that 
people make promises all the time that they don't keep, and they make promises in a church, and they make promises before God that they don't mean and they don't keep, and they don't want, and she didn't want that to happen with our love. She said, if there's a time where we don't love one another, we should just part ways. She sounds like a playwright. Sounds like a playwright. She talks like a playwright. Yeah. And that, that that theory works well until so, you yeah. run into the airplane blade of regret, yeah. and you go like, "Well, we did have a good, day. we did have a bad day. What do we do now?" And when you are married, when you make those vows, in a, you know, like Ann and I, we got married in a judge's chambers in Memphis, Tennessee, and then later, after Ann saved my life a couple times. Uh, <laughs> Oh, we have so much to talk about. She, she converted to Judaism. We got married by the rabbi. Mm-hmm. So we had two marriages, actually. Uh, that Then you know that you make those promises out loud for a reason. I, thought, I, I was more like uh, Beth before I got married. I was like, I don't think really get married. Let's just move in together. And my wife was like, no, not a chance. If I'm moving in with you, we're getting married. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And so I kind of did it for her or whatever. But you're absolutely right. Because without those vows, some of the days we've had, you'd be like, I'm out of here. I don't need this bullshit. And once you're married, there is this odd kind of allegiance you feel that you're like, yeah, we're in this for it. This is, this is not changing. We're in this. Let's make it work. Was it Seinfeld or was it Superman comics or was it both the Mr. Mix and where the world is backwards? Remember, they had the Seinfeld. Well, they had the opposite. The opposite. Opposite world. Opposite opposite George, yeah. Marriage and children is opposite world. Men are like you and like me, generally going, you know, we, let's not get married. And and women are not typically, we're not typically like Beth. They go like, I am not getting married at all. Women are going like, no. If we're doing, I I want something secure. Well, only if they want to have kids. Did Beth want to have kids? No. See, that's, that's a different thing. I know women like that, and a lot of them are like, I think when, if they really want to have kids, they know marriage is part of the process. Without kids, they're like, you know, it's Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. They're like, yeah, we're together. We don't care. Right. Uh, and, and women think they want to have kids, but who really enjoys kids are guys. So it's like... No true words have been said on this podcast. So it, it, <laughs> it's, it's backwards world. It's like the guys say like, honey, why don't we just live together, when actually men prosper in a marriage because women are much cleaner than guys. And and women die. Women who get married (laughs) die five years younger than women who don't get married. It's, It's like, whereas men who are married live five years longer than men who don't. Like marriage enhances a man's life, whereas women get the bad deal. It, it's like That's so true. That is absolutely true. Women think I want to have a baby like my wife Annie. She wanted she wanted to have children. She thought it was going to be great. Well, the kids always hate the mom. That was going like I hate you. I want to be with daddy because daddy is always taking you to the park and throwing you around and playing catch the sack with you and 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 playing a rattlesnake. I used to play rat. We used to sis on the ground and we would. We would pretend we were snakes together and crawl on our bellies. You know, and whereas the women have to be the bad cop. The women have to go, you have to eat now. And no, you can't eat ice cream anymore. You know, women do that and they become the bad cop and the kids uh, take it out on them. So it's the back kind of has, she's not OCD, but she likes to clean. And she can't last as long as I can 
in the dirt. So she invariably ends up cleaning. Like sat- Saturday, she cleaned the house three times. I'm like, you should wait till the kids go to bed. We'll clean it once. You're not being efficient in what you're doing. But she can't take it. She's like, I can't. I need it clean. I go, they're going to mess it up in 20 minutes. Why are you wasting your time? But that's what she does. My wife is the same with cleaning. She she will clean morning to night. And, and women are the same when it comes to women shop, men buy. When I go to uh, get an article of clothing, it usually takes the length of time it takes for me to drive to the mall, pick the first thing that's my size off, pay for it, and leave. I don't shop. Whereas I could go with Ann, and we could spend going to three or four stores and not buy anything. And she'll like, try this on, try it. No. We just did it. We went to the mall. My wife went to four stores. She had a big meeting, so she wanted a nice dress. Four stores finally. I'm like, why are we here? Just leave us at home and go do your thing. I, I don't know about you, but all I do, I, I barely buy clothes. It's like every time I take a job, I take the clothes. Do you, how many clothes do you have from shows you've done? Do you, do you end up leaving? Chevy it? Chase told me we, we worked on three, four projects together, but on the second project we worked together, I says, Stephen, you're a big guy. You should get the clothes. Always get the clothes. Because Chevy is like 6'5", yeah. you know? So so it's like those are hard to get, and it's hard to get. They're not hard to get. I mean, we're not in Alaska bush people. No. You know, you <laughs> but can they're get, not going to reuse them. Right. And, 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 you know, and you have these professional tailors that will wear them home. That'll, right. that'll be great. You know, they'll, and you have this suit that's cut for you and it's perfect. And just take it. Make it part of your deal. So I did that. But I don't anymore because... When you become a professional schlub, which I am now, I am like, you know, the characters I play, I remember I was on Heroes, that show Heroes, and Kristen Bell said, like, do you bring your own clothes to, to the set? Do you wear your own clothes to the show? Question. And I go, no, I'm costumed this way. This is, this is the way they pick clothes for me because, you know, I'm... I'm not the glamour played on the show. And, and, and so I always, like, on one day at a time, I'm, I would not wear those clothes. You know, I'm wearing, like, right. a purple sweater vest and the doctor jacket and all that stuff. I'm not going to wear that stuff. I haven't been on any show where, where I could wear those clothes outside. And look decent. So, yeah, I Miss- Mississippi burning suit probably not going to probably fit. not going to plus clan head guy gonna, probably not the right not going to not going to be the look. So the Rotliches though, those guys are last from the last episode. We can't we can't cross episodes. The Hitler statue from episode one. No. Um, what were you talking, what were you talking about? The first time your wife saved your life. That's right. Thank you. By the way, that's Andy Lerner, who is uh, yes. my voice of reason. He has no kids, by the way. Oh. That's why he's here to kind of be a. Uh, Proofreader. So you got to town. You go, we're back past that. You have uh, your wife, and she saved your life. Yeah. Now I'll, I'll put a cap on the Beth story. Yeah, we should we should get out of the Beth story first. How did our relationship end? How did it? How did it end? I'll tell you how. Is because in life we're always used to the problems of privation, but we're not used to the problems of abundance. As actors, we're always so used to not getting a job and not having an agent, but you're not used to what happens when you have so much work that you need people to work on your schedules. And you know that that you're not used to those problems. You're not used to lawyers wanting to, you know, to contract. You're not used to that problem. And when Beth became very, very successful, uh, 
lots of people entered our lives, lots of them, lawyers, uh, publicists, accountants, all sorts of people who were not like necessarily pro to people who weren't married, right? Oh, yeah. Legally, yeah. they wanted to make sure that everything was in her name because they were working for her. Right. They, were, they were making the buck, the coin, off of her. And there, there became more and more legal divisions between what we had. Uh, it was no longer, oh, we're in this together, pal, 50-50, and, you know, we're working on, we're working for free, and we're doing projects. It became more and more and more yeah. of a divide, and it became more and more of a fact that we were apart more and more and more. And in that, uh, distance entered into our lives, and that's always a problem. Were you working a ton at that point? You I was, began to. You began to. I began to, but when I really worked was the day, boy, this is cosmic, was the day I told Beth I had to move out. The day I told Beth I had to move out of the house. I couldn't be there anymore. I got a call from my agent to meet Thalon Parker for an audition for Mississippi Burning. Mm -hmm. The day. So I going like, Oh, so the universe, Isaac Newton's idea that the universe hates a vacuum, uh, it always seeks balance of forces, also works for personal misery and ambition. So I, I'm probably one of the dark days of my life of leaving the house. After 16 years, too, right? 16 years. This is a big deal. Yeah. So moving to another place, I get this, the biggest audition of my life with Alan Parker. And I was so miserable. I felt like, I was, you know... If you've been in a breakup, you know you feel like you're dead or dying or past death and just rotting, like I think the she, She's the only woman you had have been with. No, yeah. Yeah, your whole life that 16 years with yeah. that's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was a full 16 years, you know. It yeah. was, you know, we grew up together in a way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember I went in for my first audition with Alan Parker, and I was dead inside. And I remember just doing the Ku Klux Klan lines, looking out at the golf course across over in Beverly Hills and just did it. It was fine. Went home. My agent called me up and says, you really liked what you did. I want you back for a second reading. <laughs> Not only the way. Sure. So I went back <laughs> in for a second reading. And again, I, I could have cared less. And, you know, they have the cameras, everything there. And goes, I love Mississippi. They hate Mississippi. And I'm doing the Ku Klux Klan speech. Okay. Says, he wants to see you a third time. Now I was getting nervous because enough time had gone like, damn, three auditions for this guy. So I remember I'm sitting in Alan Parker's office, completely nervous. And the secretary leaned over and goes, Mr. Topolowski, I just want you to know Alan Parker likes you very much. Everyone he <laughs> says is trying to be scary in this part, but he says you're scary naturally. <laughs> So, <laughs> Which honestly, without be effort, from the truth, by the way. without yeah. effort, you were you a perfect plan. So I auditioned a third. She gave me hope, and I auditioned for a third time. I I go back to my new digs. I get the phone call. Alan Parker wants me to fly to Jackson, Mississippi, to audition a fourth time. Well, where does Beth come from? Where does Beth live? In Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> Jesus. Jackson, Mississippi, where I visited many, 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 many times. And so I am going now 
to Jackson, Mississippi, to the Holiday Inn. And the first day I get there, I get the little rental car and drive over and drive in front of Beth's house and thinking, should I be a stalker? Should I just sit here and wait? I wonder if she flew back to Mississippi after we broke up. Is she here being with her family? Then I drove past all the places we went together. And this, I go back. Next day, I have the audition, Alan Parker. It was in a room at the Holiday Inn, and they turned off, he had turned off all the lights in the room, had a little desk with a lamp, uh, like on my face. He says, I want you to sit on the desk, sit at the desk with the lamp light in your face and say the speech toward me. So I sit down, and Alan has the camera over here. He says, Stephen, I went out with your ex last night. We had dinner together. Uh, she's very amusing. Uh, why did you two break up? This is before the audition. (laughs) Oh, my God. And and we said, Alan, we had a big disagreement as to what constituted a joke. And he goes, very good. (laughs) All right, do the audition. So I did the audition, totally freaked out of my mind. I walked back to my room as the phone is ringing. It is my agent saying you've been cast. And I am certain, I am certain that it was probably my answer about Beth and dinner than it was anything else. And I remember when I did Mississippi Burning, we had, if, if you remember the film, I had to do a big Ku Klux Klan rally. We had like 3,000 uh, extras we had to bring for this rally. So you can't shoot that rally unless it's not going to, you have to make sure it's not going to rain. And so they were plugged into the weather service. And my tenure in Mississippi was extended by about 10 weeks. So they said, we're going to just keep you here until we're sure it's going right. Is that all right with you? And I go, sure. Because they were paying me like $3,000 a week. I'm going like, man, this is money for nothing and chicks for free. Uh, you know, I got nothing. You know, you're trapped in Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah, just where you, your ex was from, and what'd you do with all your downtime? Just sit in your hotel room and cry. That's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I'm I'm there in, in my trailer on one of the days where I'm not shooting, and knock on the door, Alan Parker. He says, "Well, Steve and I understand that you know we're going to be here for a while. You're interested in directing? Maybe you'd like to in the downtime follow me around." and see what I do. I go, sure, Alan. Thinking like, that's just what big directors do. They have like novice neophyte nothings, follow them around all day. So I followed Alan around all day. And then at night I went to the dailies. And uh, then it changed after about a month of following him around. Then it changed and we would be in a meeting where he was planning uh, camera shots for the next day. Stephen. He would hold his hand out quiet. Stephen, how would you shoot this scene? And I said, uh, uh, let's see, I would have a tracking uh, wide shot to start off with. Wrong, 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 wrong. Wrong. It would work, but it's wrong. Think about it. It's wrong. <laughs> you know? And, and he started doing these pop quizzes all the time, everywhere, like in sound editing. In film, where, where would you make the edit? Where would you start the music? You know, and he started doing this thing for like, for like a month. He, he, he did these tests with me all the time. We finished Mississippi Burning. It's, of course, a masterpiece. It's a great it's film. Flawless. It's so good. 
it dawned on me afterwards what an enormous gift Alan Parker had given to me, that that isn't just something people do. An opening of Groundhog Day was the opening here in Los Angeles. I went with Andy McDowell, and we were going to some theater here in Westwood, and there an Alan Parker was standing in front of the theater. He was going to go watch the premiere, and I ran over and hugged him, and I said, Alan, Alan, I'm sorry. I didn't know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you gave me. I, it was an education. And I was just, I thought people did that all the time. He goes, oh, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. <laughs> Go enjoy the film. I hope it's good. You know? And uh, the, I, you know, there were, at least I had a chance to thank him at that time. Do you think Beth had told him? Who told him? He came to your trailer and said, I heard you want to be a director. I mean, where did he hear that? I didn't even think about it. I didn't think <laughs> about it. It so freaked me out. That's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. It completely freaked me out. Yeah. Uh, but well, obviously, work must have helped because at least you're like working. You're going through this horrible breakup. Well, when at that time, you know, being cast by Alan Parker was the gold standard. Yeah, it was like being in a Spielberg film he, where you got the yes. nod of approval. People yeah. did, yes. So I ended up yeah. doing four or five films in a row. Right. And nobody knew what Mississippi Burning was because they kept the script a secret. So people weren't sure if it was going to have some comedy or yeah. drama or suspense or what. So I ended up doing Great Balls of Fire, Breaking In, Checking Out. <laughs> all these films the that were both films that, that were all across the board and, and eventually Bird on a Wire from Mississippi Burning. And uh, all these films were launched by the fact that Alan Parker had cast me. And and therefore, it was the sign of approval. What, was Groundhog Day the same? Were you still auditioning at the time? You had to go in and read, but people still... Audition, yes. I did audition for Groundhog Day. You auditioned for... Uh, were you getting offers from these things? Was, no, no. Uh, one, of the, one of the big casting directors, uh, Howard Fuhrer, at the time kept putting me in films or at least getting me good auditions. And he was the casting director of Groundhog Day. I was doing a film at the time, I was shooting in Paris. There's only 254 credits, you can't remember each of them. <laughs> no, no, it's it just uh, Calendar Girl. Calendar Girl. Okay. And uh, Jason Priestley was the big star of that, and Jerry McDonald. Oh, no, is it Jerry O'Connor? Uh, Jerry, Jerry O'Connor. Yeah, Jerry so, 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 so good in it. So funny. What a great script. And that script was written by a guy who only wrote one script. And I saw him later at a party, like just a few years ago. And go, what happened? Calendar Girl was such a brilliant script. He says, I don't like Hollywood. Yeah. I don't like what it is. I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. And so I was playing a gangster. And my brother was played by Kurt Fuller who was uh, a deaf mute. I'm Kurt's doing Heathers greatest. with him right now. Okay. He plays the principal in Heathers. Yeah, he's yeah. a good friend of mine. Kurt Fuller is awesome. Yeah. Yes. Kurt Fuller so, is quite so awesome. so random. He's so good. He's like, he and you are in similar categories. Where you guys are in every movie ever. Okay, here we go. This is, this is a bad and a good story. So because Calendar Girl, he played my brother, for, and the people were cheapskates, they put Kurt and I in the same room together. In the same room. When have you ever been? Never. Never. 
we weren't in the same not bed. A film, no. But, but we were, we were in, we were in both in our queen beds, you know, queen, and they split the room with us. So anyway, I get this call to read the part of Ned Ryerson in Groundhog Day. So I drive from Paris, California, audition for Harold Ramis, and do my Ned audition. I come back and Kurt and I are, you know in line in our beds at night talking like kids at so YMCA weird. camp. And Kirk goes, so what do you got going? What do you have up to? Well, I learned my lesson a long time ago that you never tell an actor you have an audition. You know, you, you, the only thing an actor really wants to hear is that you're actually leaving the business to start, <laughs> to start selling barbecue. You're going back to Texas and you're going to open up a barbecue sandwich shop. That's the only thing they want to hear. And I said, well, nothing wrong. You know, the same old, same old knocking on doors. And Kurt says, oh, well, I got something happening. Uh, Harold Ramis is a great friend of mine, and he just wrote a hilarious part for me, Ned Ryerson and Groundhog Day. Oh, shit. And we're, I'm going to start that when this is done. And now I'm about to shit the bed. You know, I'm, I'm like, holy shit. So I know that there is something afoot, and it's not going to be a happy story. They call me in, so I say nothing to Kurt. They call me in for a second audition for, uh, and, and Kurt had said that he had already had readings with the cast. They had already started rehearsing some of the scenes. I mean, they were along in the process. So I go to a second audition, and I, from Paris, California, driving back, I get the call that I'm going to play Ned Ryerson. And I get back, and Kurt got the call that I was playing Ned Ryerson. So Kurt was furious, hurt, betrayed, robbed, yes. screwed. I mean, how many... It's ways? not your fault, but... It's not my fault, not his fault, but, but something bad went down and somebody was not square with him. It was not honest. Of course. And, and, and he was hurt beyond belief. But the story don't end there. In Jesus. front, in front of the theater when I went with Andy McDowell and I'm hugging Alan Parker. Up comes Kurt Fuller. And Kurt says, I'm gonna watch a film. And I, I, I said, sure. So Kurt uh, watches Groundhog Day. At the end of the movie, he comes up and hugs me. And he says, uh, you got my part, but at least you did a good job. Congratulations. And he hugged me again and walked away. And I thought, in my life, if you want to take my lesson of two generations, along with, if you don't want to cross-platform, the Mike Fernelli story, which is in the last episode, one of the great lessons I learned about this business and show business, I learned from Kurt Fuller, that courage goes hand-in-hand hand with graciousness. And it goes, generosity of spirit will always pay its dividends. And I've always honored what Kurt did, because to tell you the truth, if I were in the same situation, I don't know if I would have the stones to do that. I, I would be afraid that it would be negative stuff, but Kurt did have I the stones. I, I, I know myself, I probably would have come out with some passive-aggressive, sarcastic comment to try to alleviate the tension that we all feel, as opposed to just being honest and going... Listen, and now we've been in the business so long, it's like, it's somebody's fault, man. That's just, that's the way this business is. And that's the way they treat you yeah. when you're an actor. They don't tell they you They don't anything. care. They don't care. No. 
There's no there's no uh, money for second place. But he is, you know, he's, we've acted together since yeah. then, and it, you know, he's he's fantastic. But that's the people, greatest. Other people have been, you know, they've booked the pilot. You know, the original All in the Family. It wasn't Rob Reiner. It was an Irish guy, and they shot the pilot, and then that pilot, they go, they reshoot it without you. That Rob Reiner gets the part. It goes on to become part of television history. Somewhere there's a dude who's like, yeah. I had that part, and it didn't work out. Somebody tested for friends against Matt LeBlanc, and he's sitting there somewhere going, it's a painful business, and that's just the way it is. I remember, uh, I I don't want to tell Dana's story, but Dana Gould did tell me one of the great stories ever. Have you heard Dana Gould? He's one of my favorite comics of all time. We're both Boston guys. Yeah, yeah, me too. Dana Gould, huge Dana Gould fan. So he was called to do Saturday, to audition for Saturday Night Live. And went on the plane with two other comics. Uh, he was the first one in the room. And Dana, I'm, I don't want to do your story a disservice, but the room shook with laughter. I mean, he went in and killed, as you could imagine. Yeah. So much so that he left, filled. Booked it. Booked it. Second comedian goes in and he kind of just hung. And the guy was getting kind of gracious applause, uh, you know, a little laughter, you know, but not like what he got. You know, it was some laughter. Third comic goes in, scorched, nothing, zero, disaster. So on the flight from New York back to Los Angeles, Dana is like calling, calling his wife, you know, baby, I think we have to think seriously about schools in New York and what we're going to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the comics, the middle comic, Adam Sadler, book, the comic who totally choked, lost, Jimmy Fallon, Chris Rock. <laughs> they got the job. Of course. Dana didn't. And he still goes like, oh, but of course, Dana has done quite well. <laughs> hey, of course he has. Yeah. Of course he has. And that's the that's problem is we get, in this, we get in this place where you compare yourself and it's not that kind of business. It's not that You business. have to go, it's not personal. It's just not personal, but no. you can't help it. You lose sleep at night. I've, I've lost jobs, and I've just like like been in tears. Right, yeah. I ate it at an ABC test where I was like, I literally had to pull the car over on the way home, and was like, because you're sitting there. I had just bought the house. I had a new baby. I see the weekly paycheck. I'd already auditioned five times. You went for the sixth time, and you tank it. And they go, "Thanks for coming." And you're like, "Wow, dude, really? That's how this works." Okay. I I was doing a. a one show and uh, the Mindy Mindy Project mm-hmm. and I was a regular on the Mindy Project and you know I get a call when I'm in Dallas and they said oh uh, they need to get a little extra coverage on the on the first episode you know and I go sure sure you know I'll be home and we'll do it and then they like the next day like right before they shoot they send me over pages and the pages completely rewrite my part and take out every joke I had every joke I had mm-hmm. I go like that's weird. I'd never heard of making a comedy less funny. You know, they took out my jokes and they made my part smaller. And then I was going in to do the, if people don't know, you go in and you do a read through before the, the network and before the studio and before all the writers. Yeah, it was first day. So uh, I go in, it was over at Universal. So I go over to the room at Universal. I walk in, read through at 1 o'clock. The room is empty. No one is there. They bring in sandwiches because 
The network people love the they fancy sandwiches with the Italian peppers. Mm -hmm. So they bring in all the food, and I'm sitting there, and there's no one there. I call my agent, call my manager. I said, there's no one here. It's 1 o'clock, right? We had the read-through at 1 o'clock. And I go, yeah, we haven't heard anything. And so I walk downstairs past the writer's room to ask someone in the office, and one of the writers, young writer, walks out, looks at me with Eyes in the headlight, like doe, deer eyes what in the headlight. What are you doing here? Like, mofo. Oh, no. And he walks right back in, and I went like, I'm fired. Yeah. Just with 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 nonverbal, just seeing the terror in his eyes and seeing my face that someone had not told Go me on. that I shouldn't be there. So uh, they had written me out of the show. And, you know, I was trying, I was trying to find out. No one would tell me any. I didn't know anything. So I had Mindy's number. And I called her, and she goes, oh, hi, Stephen. I guess you probably know at this point that you've been written off of the show. I go, no, this is the first time I've heard <laughs> no, it. No, this, this is the moment. This, this is, is, it, is right that now, moment. Right and, and then we had that discussion on the phone. I could tell she was on speakerphone, so there are probably a lot of people there, and she's going, oh, no, oh, shit, this is a terrible discussion to have now. But we had that discussion. And for people out there in show business who are listening to this podcast, about grief, about it, <laughs> about how bad it hurts when you have a regular part on a series and you're fired and you're removed from it. I'll tell you how long it lasts. Three weeks. After three weeks, you're fine. Uh, or until the next job. Well, yeah, well. It, it Unless recurs. no other job comes. It recurs. And, and sometimes in the middle of the night, you go like, oh, damn. But that's only after a couple glasses of wine. Uh. But the real day-to-day, moment-to-moment pain of it lasts three weeks. And I only say it because this, too, will pass. It, it will pass. The pain of it goes away. And you continue on. Yeah. The longer you've been in, the more you take. You go, everyone's been fired. We, yeah. We've all been fired from shows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're, you meet your wife. Yes. You're an actor. Is Beth off doing more and more crazy films? What else did she end up doing? Well, I guess after that, they did the Miss Firecracker contest, that movie. That's hers. And uh, I, I really, you know, to tell you the truth, when we broke up, it wasn't a happy time. Yeah. So I didn't follow her on uh, IMDb. You know, but I'm sure that, you know, she still travels around the world. I, I know that they just asked me t- if I would do... Uh, a tape, uh, an interview for a Lifetime Achievement Award, that kind of thing. So I know she's had Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> she's had some achievements in her lifetime. So I, I, said, I said to the people, if you're going to do Lifetime Achievement Award for Beth, the first thing you should do is not call it a Lifetime Achievement Award <laughs> because when you do that, people die. That's usually the we, end. We don't, want, yeah. we don't want her to feel that way. Lifetime so far achievement. And, and they said, well, actually, we did change the name because the first two people we gave this award to did die. Yeah. So we call it now the so-and-so honorary chair of writing excellence or something like that. But so you're, 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 you're grief-stricken. You have, you're working as an actor. Now you, working uh, as an actor. You're, and, and you're working pretty extensively at this point. Working pretty heavily. You meet Anne. And I, I meet Anne, and I have no interest in Anne at all. Of course. Why uh, would you? Why would I? And How'd you get uh, She was an actress who was single, and so I think we always used to try to set her up with all of our non-single friends at parties. And I thought she was just this weird kind of odd girl that, <laughs> you, you, and then... But you were the weird odd person. It wasn't her. It was, well, 
We Eventually were, used. We were both weird and odd people, but <laughs> then we ended up, I, I'll, I'll give you just the, the, I end up directing one of Beth's plays at South Coast Repertory. And I said, well, who I want for the female lead in this is Holly Hunter. So, because I just worked with Holly in New York, Holly couldn't do it. So then I said, I want Amanda Plummer. Amanda was busy. So the people at the theater said, well, you have to cast Ann Hearn. I said, well, I know her. I said, what do you mean? They said, oh, she's great. You have to cast Ann Hearn in this part. She's phenomenal. I said, what has she ever done? And, and You have no eye for talent whatsoever. No. So I bring her in. I bring her in to audition. And she was terrible. It was absolutely one of the worst auditions I'd ever seen in my life. And I go to the producers, I go like, you kid, you're kidding, this, this. And they said, believe me, as a man and as a director, you're going to want Ann Hearn in your show. I'm going like, you're kidding. No, okay, so I brought her back for a callback. She's terrible second time, awful second time. I said, you've got to tell me what this girl has done that I could have seen. And they said, well, she was in A Life. I said, I saw that play. What was she in her life? And they mentioned the part. I go, oh, that person was the best person in the play. That's her. I, I didn't, didn't, put the, I didn't put it together. That's funny. Didn't recognize her. So I cast her as the female lead in uh, the Debbie Tompa. And Anne was the brick of the play. Like this odd, weird girl, like grew to this enormous stature. She made every joke work. Everything that would break your heart, she killed. She murdered the audience. Not only that, on stage when there was catastrophe, she would fix things in the middle of the scene and make things work to such an extent that I was going to open the Los Angeles Theater Center with the production of Three Sisters. And Elizabeth, I was going to play Baron Tusenbach, and Elizabeth McGovern was going to play my arena. Elizabeth McGovern left the show. She couldn't do the show. And the producers and director came out to see my production of Debbie and they saw Ann Hearn and they said she's our arena so they cast her as my love interest in that show and it's not what you think there was no love interest there at all I'm watching her act and going okay and I stay to see act three when we're rehearsing which is when arena has a breakdown it was <laughs> devastating and I'm watching the director who was head of the National Theater in Norway and he looks at me, and his face is red, and his eyes are filled with tears, and he went like, to me, like, God damn. And Anne and I ended up in a lot of productions together at uh, LATC, and we were good friends. So you finally took the hint, and we're like, you know, maybe we're actually supposed to be together. Not really. Really, really? Just, you're not that smart, Steve. No, I'm very slow, you know. You're not you're, that, you're yeah, getting, it, no. it takes you a while to figure things out. What I figured out was that from knowing her before, I knew that she was smart. Now I knew she was talented. And with all of the time we spent talking together, see, this is something I didn't realize, and I know now. Intimacy ain't just about SEA. In fact, the real danger of intimacy is when you talk about things that really matter to you, to someone that you could be sexually interested in. Uh, it opens floodgates, and I didn't know that at the time. And we ended up talking, you know, I talked about my heartbreak, she talked about hers. Ooh, danger, 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 Will Robinson, right there. You know, but well, she's we, an actress, so you know there's some crazy drama right. somewhere there. So we became first uh, friends, co-workers, 
mutual admiration society, sounding board for mutual problems. But it wasn't until one night, uh, I was, one night, I was uh, out in my tomato garden, and she said, could I look at your tomatoes? Those are like etchings, right? Yeah. Same thing. She came out. It feels like another Godfather thing where he's in the tomato field with the tomatoes. Imagine a Los Angeles night. Sure. So there's just moonlight. Mm, There's no street light. It's warm. You've got tomatoes tomatoes. and you've got all this. And she's there looking at the tomatoes and looking at the uh, basil I have growing in between the tomatoes. And the moon kind of shifts a certain way and the cloud moves and hits her face with this moonlight. And I look and I go like, damn. That looks good. That looks really super, super good. And so uh, I was working on uh, Great Balls of Fire. And Anne was doing a play in Alaska. And she calls me up at my hotel room. And she calls me up at 8 in the morning. Now, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, shooting Great Balls of Fire. She's in Anchorage, Alaska doing a play on uh, uh, O'Keefe and Stieglitz and O'Keefe. She calls me up and says, are you sitting down? And I'm thinking like, wait a minute, it's eight in the morning here. It means it's middle of the night in Alaska. This is a bad phone call. This has to be a bad phone call. Or it's a good phone call. And then she says, are you sitting down? She was pregnant. <laughs> you sound shocked like you have no idea how it happened. I had no idea. <laughs> but it was, patch. We, we ended up playing Naughty Rodeo Horsey one afternoon. Sure. We went We went to, uh, I wanted to take her to hear Bobby Bear at, at the uh, Palomino Club at the time because I really love Bobby Bear. And I knew she didn't like country western music. So I got, I decided since she's an actress, I'll buy her an outfit and she'll, it'll be like a photo safari to Kenya. And so I got her this black cowboy hat with the red feather and the band and this white kind of white beater, white nice. sleeveless yeah, shirt and these black jeans and boots. And I'm thinking like, you know, at a red light, I was looking over at her and I thought, man, she looks good. She also looks like she chews tobacco and drives a tractor, yeah. but she looks good. And I realized at this point that a man never buys a present for a woman without imagining what she will look like with that present naked. This this was true with the knee-high boots I bought her at one time. It was true with the you know the diamond necklace and it was even true with the big sit-down Sears sewing machine that I considered. You know, I pictured just sitting behind that machine naked. You have different tastes yeah. than me. And with the foot pedal spinning. At that red light, I looked at her in that cowboy hat, that black cowboy hat with the red band, and for a passing moment. Imagine what she would look like in that hat naked. And a week later, I found out. And then six weeks later, she gives me the call and says, I'm getting sick in the morning. So we immediately have this conversation on the phone. Let's get married. Let's have the baby. Let's do this. My mother says, Stephen, you have to get married right away. Because when your friends start counting back yeah. months, that's true. Uh, there'll be shame. I go, Mom, we live in California. We're actors. There is no shame. <laughs> no I, shame. I have no shame anymore. So, so, you know, we, Anne flew out and we got married by justice of the peace. And uh, she was not Jewish. I was Jewish. Later on in my life, getting to 
I, it, was, it was a very moving moment getting there. And this is where I realized the error of the ways in terms of, of Beth, mm-hmm. the idea of it matters. It matters. It really does matter. When you, I, I was given justice of the peace was the only place we could get married. And the guy hands us these little cards to read the wedding vows from. I look at the cards and the corners are all bent, crumpled. And there's like smudges on the card. I look and it's like thumbprints. Yeah. Thumbprints from hundreds of people before who've held these cards before me. And the judge says, do you promise to take this woman to have and to hold for better, for worse, sickness and poor, uh, sickness and health, uh, as long as you both shall live upon your sacred word of honor. And I'm thinking like, wait a minute. I never heard that last part yeah, man, before. I never heard that either. I've been an actor. I've even played a judge, a priest. <laughs> and I never heard that. And I say to the guy in the, we're in the chamber, I said, what is this upon your sacred word of honor? Of course I'm going to marry her. Why do you think we're here? It's Christmas time. She had to fly all the way across the country to do this. Of course we're going to get married. I'm gonna, he goes, son. A simple I do will suffice. <laughs> we we got married and I realized, no, the judge is right. The idea of acting honorably is one of those invisible things that matters so much to people yeah. that we want. I realized I wanted to marry Anne before she started showing because I didn't want people to think I was marrying her for her visible attributes, yeah. but her invisible. And while... I'm doing my marriage vows with her. I realize my hands are flipping those cards, and I put my thumbprints on the card too. Those little thumbprints. We uh, so we were shot out of a cannon. We were pregnant, then married, then parents, and and actors and actors, and uh, and certainly knocking her up affected her career. Because, you know, she ended up having to, and she worked a lot. Right. She still worked a lot, but it was it's difficult when you're pregnant yeah. to work. We had two kids. How did she save your life? Yeah, I'll, I'll, jump, I'll jump to Safe Life 1. Safe Life 1 is, uh, I was having health problems. I, I couldn't speak, and I had a growth on my vocal cord. It wasn't cancerous. The doctor removed it, but said, you can't talk for two months. You know, you need to do something that's silent, that's quiet. And you, I don't know if I could. After two weeks, after two weeks, you go into a different rhythm where you just listen. And I had a pad of paper and I would just write. So my wife says, Annie says, maybe we could use this as an opportunity to go horseback riding in Iceland. Seems like a quiet part of the world. Seems a quiet part of the world. And we loved horseback riding in our our, our trainer here in L.A. is from Iceland. His parents are from Iceland. They have a horse farm there. Seemed like a logical thing to do. We had been riding there a couple times before. What, third time's a charm? Sure. So we were going to ride herding 50 loose horses from one part of the island to another part with 10 other riders, including Tony Shalhoub and Brooke Adams were on this ride with us. In fact, Brooke was one of the people that upset my life, too. Uh so we were going to ride across the country and end up on the side of an active volcano. Yeah. <laughs> so my horse was in the lead when we were up on the Mount Hetla, the volcano, when we were hit by a gigantic wind. And this is not an exaggeration, folks. It lifted me and the horse off the ground, <laughs> carrying 
carried <laughs> us a few yards and dropped us on the other side of the road. My horse took this as God saying, giddy up. And he took off. And somewhere on the other side of the mountain, I was thrown onto a hardened lava flow. Uh, the, according to legend, the head of the Icelandic riding group came to my rescue with another horse. He said, I jumped up, jumped on the other horse. I said, I felt sick. He said, well, maybe you were hurt in the fall. I said, what fall? He said, get on the yeah, horse. Yeah. <laughs> Brooke. You had no recollection. You just no, gone. no. Brooke Adams said, like, I was with my sister. She was thrown from a horse in Africa and acted like this. He has got a terrible concussion. Yeah. He has to go to a hospital immediately. So we're in the middle of nowhere. And we go to a hospital in Reykjavik. It took hours driving Oh, God. Oh, just a minute. My, my memory of this is in like 30 to 90 second increments, mm -hmm. just a loop over That's and over crazy. again. The doctor said I had a fractured neck. I, I fractured a vertebra in my neck. And they gave me this soft collar to wear, come back to America. This guy with a long beard, uh, older man, recognized me from Deadwood. And he came up to me at Kennedy Airport and said, What's, the, what's with this? And I said, well, it's a, had a horse accident in Iceland. I fractured my neck. He pulls me aside. He said, I am the head of uh, neurosurgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and you're in the wrong brace. You can't wear that brace on an airplane. If you have a fractured neck, you could die. Takeoffs, landings, any sudden turbulence. You have to hold, hold your head the whole way. Get over, call your doctor when, when you get to Los Angeles. I call my doctor, Next, and, and for you folks out there uh, in podcast land, here's a little tip for you. When you say broken neck, you do move to the front of the <laughs> so line. A heart attack or broken neck, always, that's what they say. You move to the front of the line, and I went in, and my doctor in Los Angeles examined me, re-x-rayed me, uh, and I'd been misdiagnosed. I did not have a fractured vertebra. My entire neck was broken. Five vertebrae, multiple breaks. The middle vertebra was crushed. I had the same accident Christopher Reeve had. He, and my doctor told me, you have a fatal injury. But the spinal cord hadn't been cut. No. But it was painted on by a thread. And he said, do you want to know why you're alive? And now I'm in a hard brace, not a halo, but a hard brace. And he said, because you had arthritis of the neck. Your vertebra were deformed, overlapped, bone on bone. They acted like armor and they protected your neck. Your curse of arthritis saved your life. So now I'm going home with this hard brace and when you are in a relationship and you've had a major injury or illness, you know that your partner does the heavy lifting and, and uh, saved me during that period of time. She made sure that I got the help I needed at the doctor. She helped me eat. She helped me put on my shoes for three months. She helped me until my neck healed. She was... She did everything and never complained, never went out of her way. And 
And I think about those damn little cards. You know, we get married, better for worse, and it's like a Shakespearean couplet. We don't even think what the hell we're saying. We think, oh, well, it's, you know, we have no idea what those promises mean. Well, she had the sickness and in health, and she had the better or worse. My wife's still uh, working on the worst part. She's, <laughs> she loves it when it's better. Oh, she really enjoys that part. The worst part, not her favorite part. Not, not, not the good part. Yeah. Not the good part. Uh, two years later, open heart surgery. I had open heart surgery. And Again, your arthritis saved your, saved your heart together. Fortunately, I didn't have a, a heart attack first. They found it before I had a heart attack. One of my arteries was 98% blocked. What? Yeah. No, you seem so healthy. This I is know. crazy. Well, I am now with all the surgery. Uh, so anyway, you, you spend a couple nights in the ICU, and then they transfer you per orders of the insurance company to the cardio ward. You're not in ICU anymore. And that was the first night I had to be alone uh, without Ann. And it was not a good night. It was difficult. I, I had a docking accident with my pee bottle. You know, it was beside the bed, you know, it, we missed. So I was covered with urine and blood all over me. They have tubes coming out of me. There's blood everywhere. And I'm ringing the hospital alert thing and nobody comes. Nobody comes. And finally, uh, I call her the Russian pole vaulter, like this seven-foot woman <laughs> comes in the room. <laughs> and, and she goes, you ring the bell? And I said, I ring the bell. Uh, I'm, I, I had an accident here. I'm covered like with pee and blood, and I just like to get cleaned up. She says, you're not supposed to ring bell for blood or urine. That's just for when you're dying. You're misusing the button. And I go, well, you didn't come anyway. So that's quite all right. If you could just help me to the bathroom now and give me a clean robe, you know, something to put on clean, uh, that would help. So she, the Russian pole vaulter helped, helped me to the bathroom. And I'm saying to her, I said, I guess it's a pretty good sign, huh, that uh, here I am, uh, I, I, I want to be clean still. Uh, that's a good psychological yeah, sure. sign that I'm going to live. And she goes, no, no, even the dead people want to be clean. <laughs> so that was, anyway, Anne shows up that morning. Cleaned off your blood in here. And she, I told her the events of the day. She calls a meeting of the nurses. Get in here now. She says, bring another hospital bed for me here. When we ring the bell, you come. I am here from now on to make sure he's okay. And Anne spent the next seven days by my side in the hospital room and running Cedar sinai right? So she has to go over the hill to the valley to cook meals for the kids, then come back to be with me at Cedar sinai then go back over the hill to help with their homework, then come back to me to spend the night with me at Cedar sinai and then helping me home. This is time number two. And, uh... There was, from all of this, uh, there was a time in which I was eaten up by despair. Sure. And I couldn't see any light at all. And Anne said, I will always be here. And I will always be here. And I'll be your light. You could count on me. I'm not going anywhere. So I'm thinking, like, I should marry this girl again. Because you make all those promises in the courthouse. Yeah when you're a young fool and you don't know what any of them means. And now this woman has lived with you for 20 years. She's given you two children. She's been there for the worst. She's been there for poorer. 
She's been there till death. Uh, and upon her sacred word of honor, she remained. And then you marry that girl again. And by this point, she had converted to Judaism. Surprise, surprise. And so we had a Jewish ceremony. And I was a basket case at the ceremony. And uh, those are three times she saved my life. And I'm sure she's looking for a fourth. That's amazing. Don't give her one. <laughs> yeah, that old teacher. Don't give her one. You may have to come back for another time because we didn't, we didn't get the kids. But it's like I, you got, I love these stories. I, we typically end with um, just a couple questions. Yes, sir. What are traits that you hope your uh, children get from you and from your wife? Uh, I hope that they will take chances. I hope that they will learn that time is the greatest commodity they have and they don't waste it. Mm. I hope they will learn to appreciate love and I hope they will learn to appreciate truth. That's a pretty good. That's a pretty good. We'll start there. That's a pretty good. Is it any questions? Yeah, no, that's, that's got to be the best answer we've ever gotten on that question. What are some traits from you that you hope your kids don't get? I've been very stupid in my life and I've made stupid mistakes thinking that it won't leave a mark. Uh, everything leaves a mark. So I would like my kids to have better judgment than I did. They won't. They won't. No. None of them ever do. No. I, I feel the same exact way. If I could go back and do stuff again to go, yeah. But you can't, you can't teach them. When, when my son, my older son, uh, began, he was sexually active way before I was. Robert. Well, I Let's hope so. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I had to give him the facts of life. My father never never told me anything. So I, I go in, he's playing on his computer. I said, Robert, I gotta give you the talk. He goes, Dad, don't. I know everything already. I know all about STDs. I said, you don't know what I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you the true scoop, the true story. Every time you have sexual relations with a girl, you give her the right to ask you favors. And he goes, what? It's gonna start simple. They'll ask you to help them with their homework. Maybe ask you to go over and download a new operating system on their computer. No, no. He says, it gets worse. I said, you know, they'll call you at 2.30 in the morning on the 405 to help you change a tire. That's no, yeah. no. I'm telling you the truth, son. And like your mother, Anne, you know, we had relations. She called me over and had her move a refrigerator from her apartment. And I'm there with five other guys with her refrigerator. And I'm thinking like... These guys have been here too. But I was the only one who stayed afterwards, ah. and she gave me a popsicle. So I that's told a euphemism, him, right? And, yeah, no. no. And he and he said, Dad, Dad, oh God, no, oh God, no, 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 no. I said, Son, I'm telling you, there's the truth, straight from the horse's mouth. I love that. That's your facts of life speech. Not about like how it works or anything. Just here's what they're really looking for. <laughs> this is this is what it's going to be. It's going to cost you, pal. That's it. That's the mantra. For, listen, you can do it, but it's going to cost you, pal. It's going to cost you. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for coming. Pleasure you're, Honestly, you're going to have to come back because we, I, I can listen to these stories all day. We didn't really talk about your kids that much, but you can't help it. When you get lost in Groundhog Day stories and Mississippi burning stories, you got to go. We'll get back you to gotta kids. you got to go with the day and... Um, big uh, thanks to my producer, Andy Lerner, for yep. helping us today. Uh, my guest, uh, Stephen Tobolowski, thank you so much. They'll find you uh, One Day at a Time, which is Netflix. Netflix, right correct. Now coming out. Uh, and your book, My Adventures with God. 
uh, which uh, it's at bookstores now. Bookstores now, and you could also there's an audio version. I know some people love all, you so read it. I read it, and it's on Audible, and it's also on the, the tablet. You know, My you get the electric. With God. And you just released a new batch of your podcast, the Tobolowski Files. That is correct. Um, so people can always just find. Listen, I always like just Google. And he's on the air everywhere all the time. If, if you go to stephentobolowski.com, you will have links to all of. Uh, my books, movies, and podcasts. Yeah, and we'll put links when we, when we blast this up. Dude, thank you so much for coming. It was, Pleasure, it was such an honor. All right, we'll catch you guys next time on Father Time.